Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. So good to see all of you guys tonight. You survived the ice storm of 2021. Yeah, that was, uh, that was something, wasn't it? It's really lame. Uh, <laughs> it was. That was so lame. It was like that first night I was, I was looking outside, stayed up late. Like, is it going to snow? It's like, it looks like it's just rainy nice. Okay. Oh, bummer. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be this evening. My wife and I, um, we've had, we've, we're like notorious for our car problems. We had a season of life where we had, we bought two cars in a matter of like three months. Both of them failed, like catastrophic engine failure. Uh, we like bought new tires for one of them like a week before it completely failed. It was towed to a junkyard. They smashed it before I could get the tires off of it. Like horrible car issues. So, but now our car issues in theory, in faith, Mike, join with me in this, uh, hopefully are behind us. We uh, recently, this is not that recent, I guess it's almost been two years, but recent to me, we bought a Prius. Any Prius drivers out there? Yeah? The gas mileage is insane. Uh, it's a gold Prius. So it's, it's extremely cool. <laughs> it's very cool. And uh, I feel very cool driving it. And, you know, we bought it two years ago. There's nothing wrong with it. But my wife and I have been talking recently. We're like, you know what? We need to get, a, we need to get it checked out. You know, we, we've never been the responsible car owners who, like, take it to the dealer before it needs. It's like, we wait till it's broken, and then we go in. No preventative maintenance going on in my world. And so now we're like, you know what? We really like this car. It's been good to us. Let's be good to it. And what we're going to do is we're going to take it in to just get it checked out, to get it kind of tuned up, so to speak. And uh, so we've been, anyways, we've been scheduling this. It's a long-winded way of saying this. That's what we're going to do tonight. <laughs> we're going to do a little bit of a family tune-up, okay? Um, I, I try to, whenever I think about teaching here, um, I try to teach two different ways for two specific reasons. The first way that I try to teach is exegetically. Does anybody know what exegetical means? Some of you guys are nodding. You, yeah, you know what exegetical means? For those of you who don't, it's a fancy way of saying. Um, we try to teach verse by verse through the Bible. So this verse says this, and that could mean this, and this verse says this, and a scholar once said this, and this verse says this, and, and this is what God's showing me through this passage. We, we try to do that. We're, we've been in a series on the book of Acts, and we've been going through it verse, literally verse by verse, at least reading all of the verses in the book of Acts. Um, and, and the reason why we do that is we don't want to avoid the awkward parts of Scripture. There are parts of Scripture, you, it's possible to create an entire theology for your life that leaves out large portions of the Scriptures. We don't want to do that. We want to go through verse by verse and, and read about 
Like, who killed Ananias and Sapphira? That's kind of weird, right? Herod, that guy, he was, he was eaten by like maggots or something like that. That's also pretty weird. And it was the angel of the Lord who struck him down. You know, we want to touch on those things. You're like, did you guys teach on that? We did, actually. Go back in our Acts series, find them. Uh, they're in there. Um, the, the other way that we want to teach is, uh, is more topical. And, and the reason why we want to do this is in the same way that we recognize through our exegetical study of the scriptures, there's what's called authorial intent. There's authors who wrote these various books in the Bible, and they had an intent when they wrote these things down. We also believe that God wrote the Bible. And so just like there was an authorial intent of the person who wrote 1 Peter, Peter, we also believe that God can use 1 Peter to speak to things in our lives that maybe Peter wasn't specifically speaking to. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so it's important for us to speak topically at times and to say, hey, actually, be, through, through the mind of Christ together, we're, we're, we're looking at this passage and this passage, and I think it means this. And actually, as you read through the New Testament, you'll find Paul does this all the time. He's like, it says this in Psalms, and you're like, I would have never gotten that conclusion from that passage in Psalms. That's crazy. But you're like, but he's Paul, right? So, okay, must be right. Um, so we teach topically because through the Holy Spirit, we want to find out what God has for us today as well. Um, but every now and then, something happens to me. <laughs> it, it, it hasn't happened that often, although I really welcome it whenever it does, where I'll have a whole teaching planned out at the beginning of the week, and I'll get to it, I'm like, I have nothing. <laughs> I got no inspiration, I got nothing. I'm like reading it, I'm like, I okay, um, yeah, then I could just read it, I guess, and that could be that, and maybe some people would be really happy about that if I just, just read the passage and that was it. Um, but then the Lord comes to me and he, and he put something so strong on my heart that I need to talk about it. And so this past week, um, I, I was supposed to be in Acts, and we're going to, don't worry, we're going to get to it next week. I'll be back here next week and we'll talk about Acts. Um, but he just put something really strong on my heart on Tuesday that we were supposed to talk about. And, and so that's what we're going to do tonight. I, I want to have a really uber practical family talk, almost like a family tune-up, um, some of this might be some review for some of you who uh, have been at St. Hill for a while, but for those of you who are new, which I know there's a lot of you, uh, this will be, I think, really, really helpful. So to get started, let's all stand up together and let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're standing to not only honor the scriptures and honor the text as something written by Peter, but also written by God, something more profound than just words on a page, but something that is living and active and able to divide between joint and marrow, spirit and soul. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, look down at your Bibles, verse 9. Speaking to believers, he says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This is one of the most glorious passages, I think, in all of the New Testament about who we are collectively as believers. What is the church? 
what is the body of Christ, so to speak, these metaphors that we use, what exactly is it? And in fact, this passage is actually where the name of this church, the name of our church comes from, Saints Hill. See, in Exodus chapter 19, uh, the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and God brings them to this mountain, Mount Sinai. Any of you guys know the story, right? Eventually, Moses is going to come down with the Ten Commandments and all of that, and there's a golden calf, and it gets a little bit ugly. Now, before any of that happens, what happens is this. God says to Moses, I want my people to be to me a nation of priests. So, here's what I want. I want them to, when I'm gonna, there's gonna be a trumpet that sounded and I want them to all come up the mountain and meet with me face to face, just like we've been meeting. And then my people will be to me a nation of priests. Now, if you know the story, when this trumpet is sounded, there's this kind of glitch in Hebrew where something happens and they don't end up going up the mountain. They're terrified. The people of Israel are scared of the presence of the Lord and they actually retreat from the presence of the Lord. It's not very long after that we see that God doesn't get what he wanted, which was a nation of priests. He gets instead a nation that has priests. So you get this whole Levitical tribe, the, the, the Levites, who become the priests to God, the people who spend time in the presence of God, worshiping God, offering sacrifices to God, and then ministering on behalf of God to the people of Israel. What does he say here? God said, you will be to me a nation of priests. And here's what Peter says to us. But you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What happens when the people of God choose to ascend the hill and meet face to face with him? They become priests. <laughs> what happens when the people of God in a place like Newburgh become priests? We are about to find out <laughs> through this church. The reason um, for this evening is that as our church is growing and I'm meeting new people every week, uh, maybe you're, you've, you came to St. Hill before and you're back for school and, and you're just kind of reconnecting. Maybe you've been coming for the past month, but you're a new family and you're still kind of checking it out. Maybe this is your first night. If it is, you braved ice and snow for this. I'm proud of you. Um, so the pastoral heart in me, knowing all of that, is to take a moment to address uh, what does it mean to be a part of Saints Hill? Uh, so tonight, two very simple tune-ups, if you will. Uh, if you're taking notes, write these things down. If you're not taking notes, write them down. The two things that I want to address this evening are these two questions. What does it mean to be a part of the Saints Hill family? What does it mean to be a part of this church? And secondly, how do we sustain a culture of family health? We've developed a, a, a very strong culture here in, in worship, in the scriptures, in waiting for the Holy Spirit, in familial health. How do we sustain that? So I want to talk about those two questions. So firstly, what does it mean to be a part of Saints Hill? What does it mean to be a part of Saints Hill? Well, let me tell you, if you're new to this family, uh, this is a family that has been developing um, here for the past three years-ish. And um, the people to your right and to your left are some of the most authentic, most humble, confident, and passionate people I have personally ever been around. I, I, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I are falling asleep and, and we're laying there and, we're, and we say to one another, can you believe the people we get to do life with at Saints Hill? It's just incredible. Guys, I've, I've been a part of other uh, churches. I've worked in, in other places. I've never been around people quite like you guys. It's really special. 
And my wife and I, we joke, we're like, why is it? Like, what, were they here and we just didn't know them? And, and what, Newberg just happens to be so good. Is there something in the water? And I was like, no, that's just chlorine. It's, it's very bad. So, so I'm like, what? Like, were they shaped by the adversity of the chlorine, though? And maybe that's why they're this. No. This family, this group of people has gotten a glimpse of purpose. They've gotten a glimpse of love and their true identity. And you guys have begun to apply the finished work of the cross to every aspect of your lives. So if you're new to St. Hill, you're like, what is so different about these people? There's something different about these people. They've begun to apply the finished work of the cross to every aspect of their life. And so the first thing that it means to be a part of the St. Hill family is this. It's that you need to become a big person. <laughs> To become a big person. Now, now, maybe you're like, what is that? Become a big person? You're like, I'm actually trying to shed some. What are you talking about? It's a little bit silly language, but the idea behind it is actually ancient. Jesus called his disciples to be big people, did he not? <laughs> people, what is a big person? It's somebody who in their personal relationship with Jesus not only has the ability and the energy, but they now have the power to do what he did regardless of their circumstances. See, I don't know if you've ever felt like a small person, but I have all the time. It comes in moments when I find myself unable to be true to who Christ has said I am because of the circumstances around me. It's those moments, I was, just to be honest, I don't, maybe some of you saw this, I was over here crying during worship because I was thinking of, and the Lord was graciously bringing to mind things that needed to be pruned, but I was thinking of the moments I sinned against my wife and daughter this week. And the moments where I allowed my stress and the stress of my job, the stress of my family, the stress of things to actually cause me to not act Christ-like to my wife and to my child. Now in his graciousness, he only brings things to the surface so that I get victory in them. That's his desire for me. So there's no condemnation. We'll get to that in a moment. But a big person is able to, in every single moment, no matter what's going on circumstantially, remain true to who Christ says they are regardless of their circumstances. See, there's a difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. <laughs> when, I, when my wife and I, we, we bought this old, old home here in uh, Newburgh a couple years ago when we first started the church, and we thought we could totally just move in right away. It'd be good to go. We were so wrong. Uh, it was a lot of work. It took about eight months to get the house ready for us to actually live in it. And in that time being, I can't tell you how many therm thermometers I took down in this house. The, this, the guy who lived there before me, was thermometer crazy. He wanted to know the temperature all the time. I mean, there was thermometers inside, outside of the same window. There was like, I mean, he was like, I was like, dude, these are bad windows and I almost just don't even want to know what the energy rate is. He was like, he had evidence every day of like what was happening around that window. Um, but so many thermometers. And the reason for this is, the reason for the thermometers is that we don't have any kind of central air or cooling. There's no thermostat in our house. We have baseboard heating, so if a room is cold, you turn on the baseboard heating, and it heats up pretty good. And if a room is hot, you turn off the baseboard heating. You have to go do it, right? The thermometer just tells you what the temperature is. But, but Tyler and Bria, some of you guys know Tyler and Bria. Bria is our operations director, incredible speaker, wonderful leader. Uh, they recently bought a home here in Newburgh as well. They're moving here. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. So they bought a home, and their home in every room has its own thermostat. Oh, I know. In every room, 
all they have to do is just set the temperature to be 70 degrees or 75 degrees if you're feeling real cozy. And that room's heating will kick on if it gets too cold or if it gets below 70 degrees, and it will kick off if it's at 70 degrees, right? That's what a thermostat does. I would like to put forth to you this evening that what it means to be a big person is that you become a thermostat wherever you go. Rather than just reflecting what is going on around you, reflecting the culture of the room that you're in, reflecting the culture of the class that you're in, reflecting the culture of the dorm that you're in, or the place that you work, you begin to change the temperature. You actually become a change agent so that you don't contract what other people have, they contract what you have. This is what it means to be a big person. And this is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Saints Hill. We don't exist to just be Christians and do the Christian thing. I go to church and I do the worship and I take communion and I give. I even tithe. I tithe. No, no, no. It's not, I, I don't care if you tithe or not. What I really care about is this. Are you changed by the people around you or are they changed by you? The only way that happens is by getting close to the king. Okay, I could say more on that. We gotta go to the next one. We're going to the next one. Secondly, what does it mean to be a part of St. Till? It means this. Our values become your values. Our values become your values. Uh, if you don't know, Saints Hill is essentially founded around 10 core values. And we've now actually done two teaching series where we've gone value by value and taught from the scriptures about each one of those kingdom values. And these values exist to do two things. They exist to describe the kingdom and what it looks like, and they exist to invite the kingdom into your life. If you're wondering, like, what is king, you know, you're talking about kingdom of God, what does that actually look like? These values practically articulate what the kingdom of God looks like, and they become invitations or doors for the kingdom to enter into your life. With each of these, uh, you know, maybe just snap a photo of these, we have actually in the back, on your way out at our little info desk, we have um, envelopes filled with the 10 core values on car individual cards and on the back of each value uh, is a declaration from the scriptures about that value in your life. But each of these values puts a demand on your life. If God is good, then I have to stop attributing evil to him. <laughs> People ask me, what's the most controversial of your values? That one. Because we are so used to creating theologies based upon what we see rather than what he says. And if you create theologies based around what you see, you will only get earth's results and you will only think earth to heaven. You will begin to shape heaven in your image, not the other way around. Hebrews uh, says this in chapter 13. It says that God made everything out of nothing he made what is seen out of what is unseen. And as believers, it is our jobs, it is our mission to constantly go to him and trust him to bring about things in our lives that wouldn't make sense naturally. Whether it's peace from, in a situation that you just shouldn't have peace in, it's the unseen being made seen. Or it's somebody with some kind of physical issue being healed, it's the unseen becoming seen. This is what it means to believe that God is good. And each one of these, I think Jake and I, we talk about this all the time, each one of these values, not only, you're, as you read through these, you're probably like, yeah, I see that in this church, I see that in this church, I see that in this church. We talk about these all the time because they put a demand on us to engage with the Lord in correct ways. 
Um, it has been my joy. I'm just thinking about you, Stephanie Sticka, and your family. It has been my joy to sit with different families and different people from the church and see how these values have become the values of their homes and how the kingdom has become a result of these values becoming their own. That's what it means to be a part of St. Sills, that these values become your own. If you're unfamiliar, grab the declaration cards, grab them in the back, go listen to the uh, sermons on each one. Lastly, what it means to be a part of St. Hill is the in and out lifestyle. The in and the out lifestyle. Um, I, I'm reading through 1 Samuel. It's just a fantastic story. It's a fantastic book. But in it, you basically get a couple, you get a couple different characters in it that it focuses on. And it begins by focusing on this uh, character named Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. He enters um, into the temple of the Lord as a young boy and is basically trained up. And, and, and I love what the Lord says about Samuel. He says this in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, speaking of Samuel, who shall go in and out before my anointed forever. In and out. What does that mean? It's the lifestyle of a priest. It's in the presence, spending time in his presence. And it's not that we, fortunately, now New Testament believers with his spirit don't have to leave his presence, but it's out amongst the people. It's not just, we don't, it's not enough to just come here on a Sunday. We have to go. Like I was talking about earlier with Isaiah chapter six. To be a part of St. Hill is to enjoy him. You're like, why do they sing the same thing over and over and over again? Oh, ha have you ever had a meal you couldn't stop taking a bite of? <laughs> have you ever seen a sunset you couldn't stop telling other people to see as well? The, the thing about beauty is that it increases as it's shared. It's why we want to show our friend, I can't tell you, most of Jake and I's conversation are, have you seen this? Have you listened to this? Have you watched this? We should do this together. Have you been there? We should eat this. You know, constantly. Because we love beauty. <laughs> we love excellence. And it increases between us as we share it together. It's what we do here every single week. We spend time in his presence because we simply enjoy him. We were created to enjoy him. See, it's amazing, in his presence, when you really see his face, you no longer think about your stresses, you no longer think about your gifts being used or being honored by the people around you or the goals that you have for your life. It, it, what happens, and really in an encounter with the Lord, is it's that holy fear. I can't think about anything else right now but what you are doing, Lord. And that small, resolute voice rises up as, uh, in us, and it says, here am I, send me. That's how you know you've had a real encounter. Here am I, send me. And, and, and I see this happening all over our church, all over the people of Saints Hill. You making these individual commitments. Here am I, send me. I know I had this plan, but God, I want yours so much more. If it means I get you, I want yours so much more. So if these are our goals for Saints Hill, for, for, for you, if our goals for ourselves are to become big people, to participate in the in and out, in his presence, out amongst people, to have the values of the kingdom begin to shape our lives and our homes and, and our families. If, if those are our goals, it would be a disservice to us, to you, um, Christians, to simply connect you to the programs of our church. 
I find that many people come to our church and they're like, okay, so what are you doing for this? And what do you have for this? And do you have this program? Do you have this thing? My church that I used to go to had this. And it's, it's, all, it's all very good. Um, but it is a disservice to Christians when the church simply connects Christians to the programs of the church or to the organization of the church. I'm not saying that you don't need the church, and by the church I mean the body of believers. You need the body of believers. You you, you need the great cloud of witnesses. You you, you need the great company to come together and to worship. But many people are not addicted to the great company of believers, they're addicted to the organization that is the church. To being told what to do, to having their discipleship completely laid out for them so that life is predictable, not an adventure. So here's how we work it out, (laughs) because we have responsibility as a church to you. We have a framework for four spaces of the life of a believer, and these four spaces could be helpful so long as they're helpful, if you know what I mean. If they're not helpful, get rid of it, but these four spaces are designed to help you understand what the role of the organization of the church, St. Sill, actually is and what is not our role. Okay, you ready for this? Here we go. The one, the few, the company, the many. How many of you have actually heard this before? Okay, a few of you guys. Lifers, you've been here for a while. Um, These are the four spaces that, that we think, it's our best attempt, that we think that the life of a believer takes place in. And and so we start with the one, taking personal responsibility for your relationship with God. This is a life of personal devotion. It's becoming a big person. It's not necessarily needing the church to do discipleship for you because you have such a connection with the Lord that you're able to have church uh, Monday through Saturday, right? it's, It's prayer. It's reading the scriptures. It's encountering the Lord on your own Monday through Saturday. It's the spiritual disciplines. It's baptism. If you haven't been baptized, we're going to do baptisms here soon. Uh, It's giving and serving. You know, we're we're raising up so many great people here. But I'm reminded that greatness is always tested by service. To be great is to serve in the kingdom of God. And and, and so this is you personally make a decision. Because of what God has done for me, I want to serve. But the next space that the life of the believer takes place in is the few. Do life with people you can have intimate conversations and accountability with. This is the one or two other people in your life that you can really be honest with, that you can really let them sharpen you. It's what I was doing with my wife here. I've sinned against you. In the middle of worship, I'm convicted. I have to leave my offering at the altar and be right, made right with you because of this week, right? And, and what is it? It's I need you to know me. You were placed on this earth to know me. This is Jake for me. This is Andoni for me. These are the people in my life who really know me and I've really been honest with. And so who do you have in your life as a believer? Maybe they're the people sitting to your right and to your left right now who you really, they're really the few in your life that you can go deep with. Um, The company, the third space, uh, getting the family together, the company of believers. That's what we're doing right now. This is the company of believers. It's healthy. I don't think I have to convince any of you this. It is healthy to gather, is it not? (laughs) It is healthy to be together, right? Um, This is also serve teams. You're going to find so much community and friendship and family from being on serve teams together here at the church, serving in kids, serving in hospitality. If you're new to the church and you're like, how do I get connected? How do I meet people around here? 
serve. It's so simple. Um, home Sundays, we've done some Sundays in people's homes over the years. Different events, culture classes, like the Dave Ramsey class that we're doing right now, Financial Peace University, it's awesome, and obviously our gathering. And then the last space of health for a believer is this, the many. The many people we are called to minister to. It's our town, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, um, the dorm room that we live in. And for us to retreat to just one of these spaces is to live in an anemic sort of discipleship. We actually want to be involved in all four of these spaces. So our vision for you, um, as you begin to make Saints Hill home, is this, that you would be the church every day in these four spaces, fully alive to God, fully present to him. Sound good? You're like, okay, good information, good information. Okay, we're moving on. So my next question is this, is, is it in this little family tune-up that we're doing, getting on the same page about things, what does it mean to be a part of Saints Hill? You kind of have a little bit of a picture of that. Um, how do we sustain a culture of family health? How do we sustain a culture of family health? And, and really, my heart for this evening is how specifically in that few category, in that, in that one to three other people in your life, um, how do you sustain health there? Because primarily that's where most of life is done. It's in the nuclear family or it's in the family uh, in your dorm room, your literal dorm room or the house that you live in with the roommates around you. And specifically, I want to say this. We, we being the leaders, elders of this church, have worked very hard to build a culture here where your dreams can flourish. Uh, I hope I'm just thinking about you, Hannah. I remember when I met you almost three years ago now, two and a half years ago. Um, I hope that when I, from the time that you come and you encounter this family, whenever you leave, whenever you go do whatever you're going to do, your dreams got bigger. The way that you saw yourself got bigger. I heard a testimony from this past week of a gal who um, is somewhat new to the church and she's gotten around some people from the church and she's like, you guys, every time I'm around you, you really believe what you say you believe. You really believe it, and it's so contagious. I, I hope that that's the case, that you get around us and, and you start getting greater visions for your life than you had before. When people got around Jesus, they actually argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> I hope that you, if we can have that problem, that's a good problem to have. I, I just want to so kill the, this idol of false humility in the church. I just so want to get rid of it. The fear of man has to go. I just am so desirous in my heart to see people dream the, the God-sized dreams that he has for them. For, for old, older people who, who had a dream that God gave them in the beginning and have forgotten about it to recapture that dream again and to begin to live into what he's designed them to do. That, that's so my heart. But how do we stay the course for the long haul? Have you ever had a dream and it's taken a long time to come true? How do you stay the course for the long haul? Like, like, here's the question. How do you have a house of giants, giant people, <laughs> that stays true to the call of Jesus and relationship with one another, who don't fall prey to the temptations of success and, and the temptations of greatness that have recently plagued so many Christian leaders? How do you, how do you keep family health? And I want to say this through a pursuit of holiness, through a pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness is always in response to what is already true about me. <laughs> How many of you guys understand that 
there are so many scriptures and we've taught on these. We have a whole value called we are the righteousness of God. But, but there has been a decision at the cross of Calvary and in the resurrection made about your life. A decision was made. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are pure. You are made perfect. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with Hebrews chapter 10. Okay? And for the rest of your life, you will be discovering, uh, over here, oh gosh, I guess I'm just keep on using this example. Over here with my wife, I'll use it because I was the one at fault. Over here with my wife, what am I doing? I'm going, the way that I treated you was out of line with who I am. I don't feel condemnation because I can't be condemned. I'm in Christ. But what I do feel is that there's a, a dissonance and a gap between who Christ says I am and how I behaved. And so my job in my pursuit of holiness is to bring into and under your authority whatever has found its way outside of it. Does that make sense? This pursuit of holiness is so important, not, not because I'm concerned with what people think about me, um, not because I'm concerned with um, success, so to speak, or having, having people pay attention to what we're doing as a church. I'm far more concerned with holiness because I sense an increase in his presence in our place. <laughs> See, I don't care who shows up on a Sunday. I care if he shows up. And when he shows up, I want to make sure that my life, that I've become the kind of vessel that can handle what he intends to pour out. It, there's many, many times that I've looked at different places where revival has taken place and I've wondered why there and not here. Why in that time and not in this time? And I don't think that it's because those people were more holy or they prayed more or anything like that. I think it, it, God pours himself out on people who believe he will. That's part of it. But I do believe that what God intends to do is strengthen a group of people so that they actually can handle through the fear of God, through, through being righteous, through their own holiness, uh, they can actually handle what God intends to pour out. And that requires, if that's gonna be us, <laughs> that requires judgment and confrontation in our family. <laughs> okay, here we go. You guys are excited. You're like, why'd you have to ruin a perfectly good, good sermon with that? It's like, um, judgment and confrontation. I need that if I want to be holy, if I want to walk in line with what's true about me. I want to reclaim both of these words this evening because the problem is this. In the family of Christ, we often associate these words more with control than glory. And that's a problem. See, as believers, we have already been judged and found righteous by the blood of Christ. Is that not true? Yes. Yes, nod your heads. Yes, the blood of Christ. It actually worked. One of my uh, favorite Bible verses in the, uh, my favorite verses in the Bible, I've been alluding to this. This is in Romans chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, at one point, you weren't a people, right? That's what Peter says. You weren't a people, but now you've become the people of God. At one point, you didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. And it changes everything. It changes your whole position in life. See, judging believers, we're encouraged. Do you know this in the scriptures? We're encouraged to judge believers. Judging believers can never be in condemnation because that's impossible for a believer. In fact, when I'm, I've been confronted with, with a kind of a condemnation spirit, and I think the person maybe had a good heart, but they were condemning me as a believer. And do you know what I did? Flushed it down the toilet. Because I don't have time to allow somebody's earthly thoughts about me to shape my identity. 
I want to be judged, but I just can't take on condemnation. <laughs> Here's this. The judgment over my life is righteous, so I will only allow myself to be judged righteous. You're like, oh my gosh, this guy. Hang on. See, I need my fellow believers to help me see where I have yet to apply his blood to, and his love to the character of my life. So I do need judgment. I just need them to show me, hey, right there, you just haven't applied his blood and love there. And it's true about you there, so I want to see that happen even there. You see? See, confrontation is always meant to be a glory-to-glory declaration over the life of a fellow believer. A glory-to-glory declaration over the life of a fellow believer. In fact, we honor one another through prophetic confrontation. What do I mean by that? Prophetic confrontation is this. It's showing people what's already true about them. So much confrontation is this. It's, hey, you did this and it frustrated me and I'm angry at you because you hurt my feelings. True confrontation is this. I know who God has made you to be and I must hold you accountable to your ability in Christ. There's things that are true about you as a believer. You're not believing them. You've invited me in and so I have to share. Here's where the blood of Jesus still needs to be applied to your life. (laughs) Thank you, Jake. See, if I don't know who I am in Christ, if I'm insecure, and I don't know who the person that I need to confront is in Christ, then I will constantly try to change them for my own benefit. (laughs) Some of you are like, huh? If I don't know who I am in Christ, if I'm not secure in what the scriptures say about me, and I don't actually know who they are in Christ, remember what does Paul say? We don't know anybody according to the flesh anymore. Now we know people according to the spirit. In other words, if I don't have a word about their life, if I don't have insight into who God has made them to be, I will constantly, in the act of confrontation, try to get them to change so that my life becomes more comfortable. Not for their benefit. This is what Paul is saying when he says, Put others' interests before your own. In Philippians chapter two, here's what he says. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, do you have any encouragement from being united in Christ? If any comfort from his love, have you ever been comforted by the Lord's love? If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. So what Paul is saying is this. If you want to have the same love as Christ, I think I meant to put more of the passage up there, so let me explain. If you want to have the same love as Christ, if you want to put others' interests before your own, which is the rest of that passage, then you better have had some encouragement from being with Christ. Your identity better be encouraged in him. You better have some comfort from his love. You better every day be getting comforted by his love. You better have some common sharing in the spirit. Like you're like, yeah, I have access to the Holy Spirit. You better have some tenderness and compassion. Paul starts with identity because he knows that you cannot value others first if you don't first value yourself and know what you have received from God. So confrontation, if you don't know who you are, will always be about changing them because you need them to change for you to be okay. Confrontation isn't something you do just because people are annoying. 
at the very core of it, we do it to love one another well, to see them go from glory to glory in their life. That's why we do it. But how do we actually confront? Because maybe you're like, man, that sounds good. I wish I'd been confronted more like that in my life. That'd make it a lot easier. You're like, my parents never did that. Well, how do we actually confront people? It's sort of awkward, isn't it? Even right now, you're like, I don't really want to confront anybody. I hope I never have to use this sermon. Um, How do we know who to confront and who we shouldn't confront? Well, I want to get super practical with you all because I think this is one of the keys for us to foster greatness in this house and to go the long haul. It's easy to have a grace culture where you go, hey, you're amazing, you're awesome, I'm only seeing the gold in your life, and you're going to be a prophet to the nations. And to have that person go haywire, and then you confront them and they go, hey, 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 hey. Where's all the grace? Where's all the gold? Why aren't you prophesying good over me? It's like, no, I am, but we just didn't have a previous agreement that I would confront you so that we could apply the blood to all of your life, not just part of your life where you're gifted. So let's start with Jesus, because actually Jesus, he's pretty good at confronting people. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Super, super practical. If one of your friends, the people to your right or to your left, sins, what do you do? You go to them. Here's what gossip is. Here's gossip. Gossip is talking to people about a problem that they have no power to solve. That's gossip. So, so many times, it happens, this is in our own family. I hear about other people's issues. People have issues with other people and they come talk to me about it. Don't talk to me about it. Jake knows this. I will always say, go talk to them. You go talk to them. Why? Because this is what Jesus told us to do. Don't let something fester in a family. Don't let something fester in a family. You go to the person that you have an issue with. Then if that doesn't work, what do you do next? You find another person who they respect and you both go and you talk to them. If that doesn't work, then you tell it to the church. You come talk to church leadership. You, you tell it to your few people, the, the, your community group, whatever it is. And if they still won't repent of their sin, then you treat them like a tax collector. Now, I know very, all of you are very good at treating tax collectors in a very specific way. You probably know a lot of tax collectors. You're familiar with them. It's like, what does that mean? It means this. How did Jesus treat tax collectors? He ate with them. The book of Matthew is written by somebody who was a tax collector. So you got to imagine that as he's writing this, he's thinking to himself, freedom like a tax collector. Well, how did he treat me? He welcomed me in. So, so, so very practically, how do we confront? We do the Matthew 18 principle. We talk to them individually. If that doesn't work, we invite somebody else along. If that doesn't work, we, we come talk to the church. But you actually talk to the person. You don't tweet about the person, passively aggressive. No, you go face to face and you have communication with them. Now, here's just a few questions to ask yourself before you go and you confront them. And I think these will be a helpful filter for you. The first question that you should ask yourself before you confront somebody is this. Do I have the right? Do I have the right to confront them? Uh, it's pretty often that people confront those that they have no business confronting. Ever happened to you? You're like, I don't even know you and you're confronting me. 
It's not very fun. But it's true, that cheesy line, people don't care how much you know until they know that you care, right? It's like, I am sorry, we, this, oh, this is kind of bad, maybe it's kind of bad. We had a, uh, somebody confront Jake and Andoni and I before we planted the church and kind of give us a really serious word of warning, don't do it, kind of a thing. And we had never met this person. I'm not going to listen to that. I'll bring it to the Lord, but aside from that, I'm not going to pay much attention because there's no relational equity. Relational equity goes a long, long way. It is very hard to listen to somebody that you can't trust. It doesn't mean that we don't have the ability as believers. I try so hard. It actually has nothing to do with me and the person at that point. It has something to do with me and the Lord. But I try so hard if somebody that I don't trust says something or confronts me in some way, I do my best to go, okay, Lord, if there's any truth in this, would you bring it up to me? Um, I think that we can do that as believers, but, but here's a little bit of filter for you if you're the one doing the confronting. Has that person invited your critique in their life? Have they asked you to speak into their life? And, and here, here's, a good, here's a good question. Do they, do they speak into your life? Because if they speak into your life, there may be an opportunity for you to speak into theirs. Here's a, here's a really good one. Are they a believer? Like it's, it, Paul says we don't judge the world. They're without Christ. It's our job to judge one another, believers. Secondly, second question is this. Are you winning them over in love? When you confront somebody, someone, you need to ask why. It's such a beautiful question. Why am I confronting them? Is this out of Jesus' agenda for their life or is it out of my own? Am I trying to make my life easier or to make them more like me? That's a lot of confrontation. I've done that with Jake. And I've apologized for it. Confronted people out of, I just wish you were more like me. It would be so much better if you were just more like me. So I need to talk to you about something. Is this in their interest? Ask this question. Is this an issue that I need to bring up to them or I need to let go? Is this actually my issue, not really theirs? It's very practical, but I think it's a good question to ask. See, confrontation is not for you. It's for them. So if I find in myself the desire to control bubbling up whenever I see the sins of people around me, then I likely don't understand the gospel all the way deep down. And he, because I found that he has more grace for them than even I have for them. Lastly, and we'll end with this, are you being clear? Are you being clear? So, so often um, in confrontation, when we have that difficult conversation, we either sugarcoat it or we exaggerate it. Um, and either of those responses shows a lack of love and an increase of fear in our lives. It's, I'm afraid they're gonna get mad at me, so I just can't tell them the whole thing. Just, you kind of made me upset just like a little bit. <laughs> like half an hour earlier, <laughs> you know? Um, or we, we respond in pride. We're like, I would never do that. And you should have never done that. And you're, you should be ashamed of yourself for doing that. When you let fear or pride run your relationships, the focus of the relationship becomes you. And it can, when you do that, it can mean that other people... <laughs> They may like you more, or they may be more favorable towards you on the surface, but you've done so at the expense of their growth. So when you know who you are in Christ, you can be very clear. This is wrong. I still love you. This doesn't touch your identity. I'm actually bringing this up because of who you are, of what your identity is. Here's how you know if the person who confronts you loves you. They stay in relationship with you. They remain. Uh, let's all stand together. Guys, we're building a family of giants here and it requires us to pursue holiness together. 
It requires us to love one another well by confronting one another. It requires us to hold one another accountable to our ability to be a big person, to our ability to have the values of the kingdom all over our lives, to our ability to live the in and out lifestyle in the presence of the Lord and out amongst his people. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.